Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, first of all, what took you so long? Secondly, be sure to go to quickfs.net and sign up for their service, quickfs.net. I'm going to put the info in the description down below. And if you do sign up, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. If you're watching on YouTube right now, this is where we pull all of this long-term financial data. The download financials part is my favorite part. I'll do a little demo right now. You click it, it opens up through Excel and bam, look at that. Looks beautiful, has all the data from 20 years already in Excel. So if you like to make financial models, you can pull this data yourself. Uh, but really, I just like to look at everything from a high level overview. And that's what we use every single day and also all the time on the podcast. So go to quickfs.net and uh, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding if you signed up. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about where we currently are in the market. And this is something that I think is on everybody's minds. Now more than ever, and again, maybe you you don't experience this as much, okay. but I feel like now more than ever, instead of hearing people talk about like great businesses at attractive valuations, mm -hmm. moats, competitive advantages, stuff like that, it seems like the talk is all around the current debt that the United States has, okay. inflation, the unemployment rate, stimulus, macro, the crazy yeah. high, yes, exactly, yeah. the crazy high multiples, you know, what is going on in the world? And we try to really tune all of it out. And I think everybody, our crowd is probably in the same boat as us where they focus more from mm -hmm. the bottom up as opposed to macro things. And I just thought it would be interesting to kind of get your thoughts on just everything that is going on. So to set the stage, right, we have the unemployment rate is at 4.2%. Mm -hmm. I think the pre-pandemic, the lows was like in February was like 3. Uh, oh, I have it written down, 3.5%. Um, national debt, $29 trillion. Something that I think is interesting if you're actually looking at the screen right now. So I love... That's probably gross. Yeah, but... Yeah. Yeah, okay. I look at this uh, website a lot, Fred Blog, St. Louis Fed, just to get like a lot of information that's going on in the um, you know economy and stuff like that. And something that I thought was very interesting is that the debt is at all-time highs, but right. the actual cost of servicing that debt, like the interest as a percentage of it is at lows because of where interest rates are. So and duration, I, yeah, both those yes, things. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I think the Fed is actually in a pretty tough spot, I would say, because that that that's variable as well. So as interest rates rise, they're mm -hmm. going to have to service that debt, yeah, which means that their interest payments are going to go up. There's far less, you know, it depends on the country, but like the United States um, isn't especially extreme compared to some countries, but uh, you have much more, uh, much larger amount of short, shorter term debt out than say like 30 year debt mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why I know people call them crazy, but when the previous president, I think he was saying they should issue like a hundred year treasury bonds or something to lock in rates mm -hmm. before yeah if you want everyone's like that's crazy but yeah yeah from the perspective of the uh, of the country it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah, yeah. and there have been um the uk had perpetual debt out so it's it's been done before um so to set the stage yeah, yeah so and then you know we had an inflation print that came by um, you know, so it was always, it was transitory, it's transitory, things are going to slow mm -hmm. down, there's bottlenecks, stuff like that. This was the result of COVID. Um, now the Fed is saying that it's probably a good time to retire the word transitory, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, how much of transitory do they actually, I mean, we've talked about this before, right? They kind of say these things so it doesn't happen. Where if they, right. and inflation is a leading indicator in the sense of, where if you kind of project inflation, then everybody, uh, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling thing because then companies are mm -hmm. going to compensate for that. They're going to raise their prices. They're going to, you know, do all sorts of things like that. And then inflation sort of by that uh, becomes real, manifests itself. Uh, but we had a 6.8% um, uh, uh, on the CPI, which came out last week. So a lot of people are, you know, very, I would say, um, scared or shocked by that to what's the Fed going to do? They say that they're going to slow down their tapering. People say now they may have to speed or speed up that process of slowing down their tapering. There's the talk of rising interest rates, which is why you probably have seen a lot of these tech stocks at, per our last episode, you know, multiples of like a hundred times uh, ARR starting to, you know, kind of pull back and come down to mm -hmm. earth a little bit. Buffett's talked about how interest rates act as gravity on like the financial markets. Let's tune it all out though, okay. right? 
like what does the investor do today when you have the markets at all time highs? Now, that's a little bit. I mean, what do we define as the market? The five biggest companies in the United States or 500 companies? Because I don't think, you know, 500 companies uh, are all at all time highs. I get it. It's a, it's an index. So that's how it makes sense. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just feel like it things are a lot worse out there right now than right. what you are seeing in headline numbers or with the markets just being at all time highs. So I'm just kind of curious to hear like how you're thinking about it. We own certain companies that right. are sensitive to interest rates. So I'm mm-hmm. just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it. Tuning out all the noise, just looking at the data itself and how do we, you know, either uh, maneuver it or just be investors and, you know, look for opportunity. Yeah. So we're exposed in certain ways to some risks. Uh, the risk is really not from inflation itself, but from um uh, a big step up in interest rates if it was to be maintained for a while. Um, that means that rates in the future are significantly higher than they were in the past uh, if banks had made loans in the past that now are at inappropriate levels versus their funding costs. Um, and that's very real risk. And then like shorter term, there's the, a spread thing. And you can see that with like 210 spread and stuff like that, that probably investors like it in like say in banks like it when that steepens and don't like it when it gets flat and it's you know it's the pretty flat curve. yeah that's mm-hmm. um the the shorter term rates are reacting more to the things that we're talking about than you would think longer term rates should react uh which may mean that that people don't really believe that um once rate cre- rate increases start that they'll continue for uh, a meaningful amount of time and stay that high. Uh, so they may believe very strongly there'll be three or four increases in the next, uh, you know, roughly year, maybe a little bit more than a year. Um, but they may not believe that then rates will get to more like the level that they've seen in the past or be sustained for a long time after that. Um, certainly they don't believe that like this kind of number you see with inflation and stuff, normally what kind of rates that would cause is the rate you're going to see. Meaning? Otherwise, long-term rates would be higher. Yeah, way higher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of talks of the 1970s and the roaring inflation that we had and what that did to the market. Yeah, there's some similarities. So the 1970s, uh, although people talk about it as being the 70s and everything, it's really like 1965. Uh, you see a real change in um, economic numbers from that point on. Uh, government policy, basically. A willingness to... Uh, do things that would be inflationary and here we've had 10 years of that too Mm -hmm. so we've had that willingness to do that and then much later you have a jump up inflation because of something kind of random seeming or whatever Uh, but the policy that may have enabled that was in place for a long time before then Mm -hmm. you know with deficits and things like that and so there's specific reason with covid now there were specific reasons with the war and things like that in the 70s but um it, it started earlier with a kind of willingness to abandon previous ideas about um how you ran the government um and how you'd run the fed now um and you same thing here large you know there's definitely been a change in terms of how big deficits people are comfortable with uh, both parties and all that and uh, with the fed i mean they've done things for 10 years that they wouldn't have been comfortable with um before then and i'd say that's what you see in both cases um if there's other similarities, I don't know. I mean, it's always a different thing that might cause uh, prices to increase, like consumer prices or, or whatever things we're looking at, asset prices. Um, but, you know, it is kind of similar in the sense that you've, I'd say there's a shift. There's a shift in attitude, public policy attitude from the immediate period after World War II that the attitude of the 40s and 50s shifted by the mid 60s and i think that's true here the attitude of 2000 of how the fed thought it should operate and how the government thought it should operate is not the attitude of the 2010s i think so in that way it's similar Mm -hmm. how are you thinking about it currently as you're sifting through companies and you know quite frankly thinking about the businesses that we own um it's the most at the time I've been investing, it has the most impact on decisions about stocks because of the risks. 
Um, and the big one is the, you know, financial things with industry risk, if it's a lot different in the future than it was when they made decisions in the past. Um, to some extent, inflation is an issue, but, you know, inflation is probably somewhat beneficial, you know, on a relative basis. It's not beneficial on an absolute basis. It's bad um, for investors. But on a relative basis, you know, some of the things that we own and have bought in the past and stuff um, would benefit compared to other stocks on a relative basis. And that's because we've always thought about inflation. And if we could get inflation protection for, you know, free, then we would take it uh, in terms of the kinds of businesses that we would buy and stuff. That's always been the case. And so um, we have less of an issue with that. And then we always avoid things that have short-term uh, funding needs, except for financial stuff. So, you know, in, in the things that we own that are non-financials, they have not used short-term and floating debt and obviously you wouldn't want to have that now mm -hmm. so do you think it's a matter of quality right so the types of companies then that you're investing in they have pricing power they have dominant businesses if there's inflation they will be able to keep up with it by raising their prices i mean does it really come down to from like the bottom up stock pickers perspective just the types of companies that you're investing in uh it helps to have spent on all the assets you need in the past so uh, dollars, that, uh, old dollars. And it helps not to have um, labor and suppliers and stuff with bargaining power with you. So, um, I mean, Amazon is a strong business, but I don't think inflation is good for Amazon. You know, I think it's really bad for them. So it, it, it depends. You can have a really strong business and it'd be really bad because you use, you, because of um, the bargaining power of others with you uh, in the present situation. Uh, it is better to... You know, it's better to be Maui Lane and Pineapple. Uh, it's better to friend. have 100% of your in investment in something that you bought a while that ago. you're not buying any more of. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, look at that price. Yeah, so and you see that with a lot of things. So it is interesting. I was just looking at a um, uh, basket, basically, of all those things we've talked about, land things. So like Alico, um, Maui Lane and Pineapple, uh, QAnon Land Association, which is, you know, uh, now it's a buyout thing, but, you know, what oh, the stock cool. was doing before yeah. then and all of that. And um, they all outperformed uh, basically for 10 years or so going into like 2006, 2007. And then since then, they've underperformed the S&P. But it is interesting that people see things like that or like Party or, or one of those uh um, companies that actually for 10 to 15 years, they beat the S and P in the nineties. Um, and so when a stock, when stocks like these underperform for 10 or 15 years, then people think they're bad businesses and that the S and P 500 type things are a lot better businesses, but it does depend a lot on the macro sort of situation and the multiples that they're at at the time. Yeah. So the, the thing with all of those is, um, for the most part, they had bought things in the past. So the land and stuff that they own, they, they, they own from, um, things that happened a long time ago and they're either selling off now or they're making little capital investment. Those, that's the best things to own. Uh, where they don't need to put a bunch of CapEx back into their, yeah, toll bridge is yeah. the best thing mm -hmm. to own. So Timberland is a good thing to own. Um, so basically for people just to fully understand, cause we just had this conversation mm -hmm. in the car here. If for example, they need to, let's say build something new within the company today versus a year ago. Well, right. now labor costs, um, you know, whatever sort of commodities that could go into that, whether that's mm -hmm. lumber or everything else is way higher than where it was a year ago. Just so everybody yeah, understands I mean, the concept. It, yeah. A lot of businesses, not all businesses, but plenty of businesses don't have returns on equity much above 10%. And if you're going to build something this year versus last year, it's going to be more than 10% higher. You're getting the same thing out of it, you know, whatever that is a building or whatever. And, um, it costs you more. So having done it last year is better. Um, obviously, if you had stocked up on a lot of inventory and stuff, that's better. You see that with car dealers. If they had a mm -hmm. lot of inventory, they have a one-time huge gain on that. But then if they turn around and now buy cars, then they have a bit of problems. Car dealers is a good example. Used car prices are going, uh, had been going up in the last year or so at the same rate at which like um, equipment for natural gas stuff was going up at the time of the... Um, uh, first real natural gas boom in the U.S. So we've talked about that with Penn Square and all that. About 2% a month. 
And that was the collateral they were lending against then. And used cars going up about 2% a month. So uh, you have the same sort of dynamics that way. So it, the problem, though, is, of course, it, that one time you get a big gain from it, right, the inventory. But you don't have a supply of inventory in the long run. So you have to turn around and then spend that again. You saw that Friedman Industries is a uh, mm -hmm. steel company. Mm -hmm. Same thing. It earned some huge amount of its market cap in a single uh, quarter. Uh, steel prices went up. I think the kind of steel that they sell maybe 200% or something. And, and inventory is often very large compared to market cap. So big gain. If the company said we're liquidating, yeah, then, then you'd make a lot of money and stuff. But if they then turn around and try to buy as much steel in, in unit terms as they had before, then in essence, you haven't really, you're not earning anything except for that one time bump that you mm -hmm. had of cash. And that is the, what happened when you're talking about the 70s and, and 80s and stuff with a lot of American businesses. A lot of them reported earnings, but had no real earnings. Um, until inflation calmed down because a lot of those gains are from things that actually couldn't have been cash that you take out of the business because you immediately have to turn around if you want the same market share and buy things at higher prices so that's the issue that you see so you don't want something with a lot of um, uh, in the long run in inflation situation you don't want something that has a lot of inventory now in the short run if you have a lot of diamonds, if you have a lot of steel, if you have a lot of whatever used cars on your uh, um, in inventory, then you're going to make huge gains for that year. And so speculators will buy those things mm -hmm. on that anticipation of this amazing earnings number. And, and it does generate cash. But then if you take that cash and put it back into more stuff, then you haven't really you know, had a gain. You're doing mm -hmm. the same volume of business over time. And so those things keep taking that. If you have businesses that don't have receivables, don't have inventory, don't have any of that stuff, and have things that they've bought in the past or projects that they've spent on in the past, then that tends to be the better business, especially if they have very low um, labor component to their uh, business. So like, you know, licensing type businesses and things that don't, I mean, the best example is, um, we talked about, uh, what is it, FRP Holdings? Or, mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, the gravel pool. Um, yeah, so the, the two things they own, now they're they are spending on stuff though now, but they aren't spending on the um, the uh, rock business. The what was um, you know the quarries that were associated mm -hmm. with Florida Rock, so they aren't spending on that. That's pure royalties. There's no capex that they do on them, so that obviously is a good business over time to have. And then the other thing is apartment buildings, basically some industrial stuff, you know warehouses, um, but those things. If you then turn around and buy more of them at high cap rates and things like that or build them and stuff are, are maybe not good investments we don't know but th they certainly the things that benefit from inflation relative to other stuff is things that you've invested in previously so if you had a lot of apartment buildings and you had a lot of gravel pits um and you weren't going to buy more then they'd be good businesses mm -hmm. you know but that's the, the not going to buy more is the big part because we've talked about that most oil companies that you look at or something might invest in more of that energy fossil fuel seems to be less lately we'll see if that holds but they've kind of underinvested what you would have expected by now so you might do well in those things but some of them might just be royalties or things like that that's more the kind of stuff that would do really well mm -hmm. um, it's like if you buy uh, or you you're looking at a company that has provable reserves in mm -hmm. something like a quarry for the next 50 whatever years it's like well they already paid for it a long time ago and they just get to benefit from the price of it going up yeah yeah now if they turn around and go and buy a new quarry that's a different thing but if they right. just kind of mint the already existing one well it's a great situation yeah and so that's what the, the issue often with like miners and things like that people always say to buy like we talk about gold miners or something in many cases there it, it yeah. looks like gold miners should be a lot more attractive than owning gold they don't always work out that way because of their capital allocation. But like if you looked at them and you thought that you knew what the capital allocation was going to be, then in many cases you think I should own a gold miner, not gold. If I'm going to own one of the two things, I should own the gold miner. They're actually cheaper. They should be generating a real profit from what they're doing. But in many cases, they then go out and buy stuff and, and the way that they finance things and everything, they can manage to get returns that are as bad or worse than the metal over a decade or something, even though they were set up as looking a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. Okay. If you were running the Fed, what would you do with the current situation? I, yeah, I don't have an answer for that. I don't like to comment on like, I mean, because as an investor, I just have to take what yeah, we're, yeah. we're given, you know? And uh -huh. so I, I don't like to 
try to see what I think the way things should be, mm-hmm. but just take what we have as, you know, that's the, the, the set of opportunities and stuff that we that's, have. That's the stoic way of um, looking at it, Jeffrey. <laughs> Uh, because the the Fed is not run to create nice investment opportunities for us, you know. Seems like they are, but yes, correct. Yeah. That's not within their mandate. The, you know, that's that's not what their job is. Yeah, independent so, control, inflation, and the unemployment rate. Yeah. So if you start to think about what would I do and stuff, then maybe that shades your views of the future of what will happen. You know, mm-hmm. then you start to think that they're doing things wrong and they should do it my way. Or you think that they will do it your way. You know what I mean? That's the kind of two things that happen to people when they start thinking huh. that way. But you have been thinking about it though, with your comment of, you know, like a little bit, a basket of these companies that could benefit from it. Yes. I am surprised to some extent by relative pricings of some sorts of assets and things. They, the, it is difficult to explain. The it is not just that obviously the market does not expect inflation to stay at the current levels, but the expectations from stock investors in many ways seems to be predicting a, a you know an extremely different situation. Yeah, uh, an extremely different situation than kind of the the current numbers, or mm-hmm. you know, um, which is interesting, and I don't know what that's all about. Uh, I, to some extent, I think that buying things that are a little bit better protected against inflation things is, um, is still underpriced in the market. Uh, not that they're great opportunities and, and all that, but you don't seem to have, there's not sort of this speculative element that you have to pay up for in mm-hmm. many cases to get better protection, um, from inflation than in things that I think will not benefit at all from inflation, you know? So what I mean is like, um, you know, take something that would be really hurt by inflation, theoretically restaurants. The, if you look at the stocks and the pricing on them against things that, that own assets that would benefit from inflation, um, more that would be better protected against it. They, it just doesn't seem to reflect that kind of concern. Yeah. I was looking at, uh, Meritage Hospitality Group, and mm-hmm. in their last quarterly report, they're getting hit by labor, and it's compressing yeah. their margins. But it's like the stock didn't even didn't even move from it. But they're definitely feeling it in their financials. Yeah, so restaurants are a really good example of one that can be hurt. Um, supermarkets are a good example of something that can be hurt. It depends. Restaurants much more so than the supermarkets, but um, they're ones that. But again, this is also a little bit of a difference between like looking at one year versus looking at like a longer term in, mm-hmm. in the future. Um, and, and maybe people are more focused on shorter term of whatever. But yeah, the restaurant prices compared to other things would surprise me. You would think that um, uh, the things that own citrus groves and timberland and uh, quarries and land in Maui and all that would be performing well compared to uh restaurants that employ that use protein and employ um minimum wage workers yeah you would think that would be the worst thing that you could have but you know the stocks don't seem to reflect that Mm -hmm. i wonder how often their rent for these places reprices as well yeah so if like there's roaring inflation and the value of these buildings are going up Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure there's rent escalation clauses in there but i'm just kind of curious it's again we've talked about it i just feel like restaurants they get squeezed from every angle it seems like Mm -hmm. yeah and i don't know what will happen with things like rent because that's the stuff that's complicated about these when people ask for predictions on this um because of interest rates so obviously for a lot of this stuff the offset that people could say is well the cap rate will be worse in the future then if you really expect a plenty of inflation and stuff, you know, so it adjusts to a significant extent. There's offsetting factors. And I think when we talk about a lot of macro things and people ask my predictions on it, um, the problem is there's stuff that happens now that you might predict then can set into motion things that work in the opposite way. It's not always self-reinforcing as some of these trends are self-defeating, you know, uh, if, you know, like take interest rates and stuff like that. Um, if you think the economy is running kind of hot and all of that, uh, you might then think, oh, I should bet on that fact. But actually, if that is true, then likely there'll be policy things to undertake and that would be more likely to slow down growth in the future. You know, in a sense, that's how complicated it gets in that Keynesian beauty contest kind of way, because what you're doing is almost 
if you really wanted to speculate on those things, what you have to predict is what do I think will be the case or is the case that the Fed and others like that will not recognize by a certain amount of points such that it continues long enough, you know, when we talk about reflexivity and all that stuff, that it continues long enough that I make a lot of money on this speculation. Because if it's something that is obvious and it happens, then a lot of other people will recognize it too. And there'll be a reaction to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's the most I've ever been focused on macro things, I guess. That's what it's, I said. I yeah. feel like it's, I, that's a lot of, uh, it seems like it's a lot of investors now. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, yeah, I, I think that's because of interest rates. Yeah. Just because of the disconnect of where interest rates are versus um, what could happen in the future. Um, I don't like, this is true for all businesses. It's true for cyclical things and stuff. In general, businesses are worse off if the current environment they're in does not a- uh, accurately reflect the normal environment they'll be operating in in the future because they make planning mistakes. And that's why you have cyclicality because you react to current steel prices instead of thinking about steel prices years out from now. Mm-hmm. In insurance, you react by setting prices that are inappropriate now for future years uh, because you don't correctly estimate things about um, loss rates and things like that. You're working off bad information. A lot of times companies react a lot to the current situation and that's fine in very stable industries and so that makes usually being in consumer products and things like that a very easy business to manage because you can manage your costs and things like that today is a pretty good idea of what they'll be like in the future but in certain other businesses it's not and you know like in banking for instance things that make sense now with your funding costs as they exist now and with um the rates that you can lend out and stuff now um looks like a good deal but depending on what the situation will be in the future, that could turn out to be a bad deal in the way that it does happen, like writing long tail insurance or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's definitely an issue. Um, and it affects all sorts of things. It, it, I mean, I mentioned once before, but it does affect insurance things too, because they obviously, um, it depends on what kind of insurance you're writing and stuff. You know, if you're doing things for that involve medical stuff and some things like that, you're fine. Those things are not inflating but certain other stuff um you know you you made an error in setting your rates probably even just the level inflation we have now um you probably are going to see not i mean not the level but the amount of time such a short period of time even that affects an insurance company in that they didn't set rates at the level that they should have if they were expecting three percent inflation they got six or seven or eight in the category that they were writing in yeah, it's crazy to think. I mean, if you have a million dollar portfolio, $68,000 of that, assuming this keeps up, is basically just being eaten away by inflation. Yeah. And, you know, it, and in some ways, um, depending on who you are and what your situation is, for in some ways, it's more expensive than that for some people, just because the affordability of um, housing and, and transport, energy. Yeah, energy like too, for yeah. like uh, yeah. and, and food, they take that out of a lot of these things, uh, energy prices and food, which as mm-hmm. a everyday American, I think is probably two of the most popular things that they spend money on, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, no, actually, it's interesting in the um, when I was mentioning the restaurant stuff, it was interesting in the CPI. I don't know if people know this. Um, food away from home is one that you is an important number to look at, but food away from home actually includes um. Uh, food in institutional settings, which was down a lot. So actual inflation in restaurants is much higher. Mm. Um, so if you look at just full service restaurant and limited service, which are the only things you can invest in really, unless you're investing like, um, uh, yeah, I don't know which public things would be doing food in institutional settings, but basically there are all the restaurants and stuff. Theirs is a bit higher than what you saw from food away from home um, as a general category. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, those are more the ones I would look at normally when, you know, we've talked a little about inflation expectations and things like that. What I think does reflect that, um, in normal times is things like food away from home, alcohol away from home, things like that tend to be pretty, um, they would not change those prices unless they expected to continue. 
in a way, you know, so they, uh, it's a small one-time thing is not something that they're going to shift their pricing on a lot. Um, and so those are some more local things, things that have a better margin that way. Um, as opposed to like when you're looking at meat prices and stuff, that's very market driven. Apparel is like a useless category to look at in terms of inflation, electronics. Those things are just very volatile. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about, but the difficult thing, of course, with COVID is, are there lots of other factors driving pricing at restaurants, movie theaters, things like that? Normally, those would be really good categories to look at very predictive of like what future inflation might be and what a normal level would be because they would try to smooth out price increases in those kind of categories you don't want to increase your menu prices by 10 percent this year if you could do three percent three percent three percent you know um if you knew what it was going to be for the next few years and so you see some extreme examples of that like um we've mentioned flanagan's on this podcast Flanagan's surprise, uh, you know, um, carried out a menu price increase and, and, and drink price increase within like six months of doing it once before. So they obviously didn't plan for that the first time they did it. Um, so that's a good example of that kind of thing. And there's just more things with companies that I've been looking at that obviously are changing certain policies. So I, th- I think I mentioned that auto suppliers change some policies, auto parts suppliers, um, in their 10 Ks, they mentioned that they now require, um, repricing in, in many cases for, uh, based on commodities that go into the product. So normally it's a lot of labor. So if you're doing something, even that's, that's metal or whatever, uh, the actual metal component is not a huge part of your cost. Um, so they had generally not worried about doing that, but now they reset it quarterly in some cases for the automaker. So the automaker has to have it reset based on the price of the, um, commodity. And so that's an obvious concern for them. Um, was the Dollar General that raised Dollar Tree? Dollar Tree, yeah. yeah. Dollar Tree's raising their yep. their mandate to they've was it a dollar twenty five? Yeah, they've thought about doing that a lot before, and this will be the time that they really do it. Yeah, um, but you know what has not gone up? That Costco hot dog. It will never go up. It will right? never that go will up. Be the the CEO, he system. will murder all of them, or Senegal. I think that's his name, right? Seal Senegal, something like that. Yeah, right. That you have to keep that <laughs> pricing on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Nathan's, Nathan's is a pure licensing business. They get a percentage of it from the, um, see, but that's a great example of a business that doesn't have a lot of capital, right? Where it's, there's no capital. Yeah. The ability to raise So just so people know, they don't actually produce for themselves that way. Uh, they, they use, um, oh, I wish that I could remember the name of the company that they probably use, but, um, they use a meat producer, um, that is one of the big ones, uh, like one of the. I don't know if they still have any licensing with Smithfield, but um, I'm trying to think of the other one that is. And I don't remember it, but uh, they then produce for them what you see in, in grocery stores. And Nathan's just collects a royalty on that. Now, Nathan's in the past has lowered the royalty to help them out on uh, when meat pr- prices w- rose too fast versus um, like wages and things like that. And so that was obvious. So, you know, it's not a perfect hedge that they have some guarantee that they're going to do that. But in general, it is obviously if hot dogs cost a lot more in the future than they did in the past, that'd be beneficial to something like Nathan's um, because it tends to increase, you know, the royalty, anything that's a royalty. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Buffett's talked about that, but honestly, anything that's a royalty benefits. So like the whole toll booth, Mm -hmm. um, music it's like uh is that umg universal music group yep mm-hmm. anything that uh is just a pure royalty and that's what i was saying with the resource things that pure royalties are more beneficial that way um and, and nathan's is a rare example of that but there are probably some other companies that are mostly licensing businesses what about the uh, i can't remember the name music trust we've talked about yeah, it on the podcast. Music, yeah, trust, yeah. music trust so yeah although you don't know in many cases will those does that will that change See, hot dogs is a little bit easier to figure that they'll uh, be increasing in price than, than music. I don't know. That is an interesting one. Online companies haven't dealt with uh, price increases that have been meaningful in terms of inflation in their business. And so we'll see in some cases if they're able to pass along costs. Sometimes it might be hard for them. A lot of them built their business model on attracting a lot of uh, volume growth with low prices. And so what do they do when it's time to increase those prices? But some of the others will benefit, um, you know, to a certain extent, something like Google and stuff is just advertising. So if the ad market grows over time, then they're like Buffett said, it's a gross profits royalty. So since it's an ad company, you know, they'll do fine that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But labor, you know, is the issue for a lot of these. 
Um, yeah, wages have gone up. The yeah. whole thing now with real wages are not up, you know, but obviously nominal wages are up, and um, and just more labor problems for some companies. Can you get enough labor when you have a big disruption in employment of where people were working and everything? A lot of people are changing jobs. Um, then you can have changes like this. That's uh, we've talked about like in a theoretical sense about Japan, but that's a big issue in in Japan that there's so little change in the employment situation or anything because the front end of their uh, labor, um, you know, young people coming into the workforce is so small. It's even smaller than the things that you see with population growth decay um, because people are living longer. So that kind of ex- population uh, growth doesn't even capture the new labor growth in terms of people coming out of school and stuff. Um, here you had lots of people changing jobs, lots of people changing their life in a lot of different ways. And that means that you're going to have a lot of change in all the agreements that you have. And that's what the labor things are. So those are the agreements that you have. And normally things don't change as much year to year. You know, we talk about inertia and stuff like that. So the tendency to have, you know, maybe it was possible for companies to pay higher wages in the past, but there wasn't much of a, a need to do that until you had a big change that way, Mm -hmm. just like you would with supply things, just like with, we talked about with, um, you know, with, with agreements, you know, with like agreements for parts and things like that. In those cases, they may have always wanted that, but it wasn't a pressing issue to in the relationship until a year, um, like the one that they've had recently, you know, if you had something that involves steel or something, it goes up by that much, then that forces that issue. And the same things with labor things. Maybe people weren't very happy with the wages that they were making in some cases. But there, you know, was not high inflation numbers and things like that for them to point to. Um, I think from a stock picking perspective, I don't like the idea of like buying inflation hedges and things like that. If you look at a lot of the mistakes that Buffett made, his outright purchases of things purely for inflation reasons, I think were not some of his best investments when he would buy things in you know, aluminum or oil or whatever things that he was interested in that way. Um, although a lot of the investments in good businesses that had a, a better ability to deal with inflation. I mean, the C's candies would not have been such a hugely successful investment for them if it hadn't been for inflation. That made it on a relative basis compared to other things much more attractive. Inflation does change the relative attractiveness of certain um, businesses a lot. So some stocks become relatively much better compounders versus others if there's a lot of inflation you know um we saw that when we did the hundred baggers right mm-hmm. the uh companies that own timber and stuff were hundred baggers from the 30s through the 70s yeah. but we're not hundred baggers from the 80s to to um 2010s or whatever um just because it was really hard during a period of high inflation to keep up with um the performance of just commodities and stuff like that where in a later period it's very easy Mm-hmm. You know, where there is really low inflation. So it does change those things. But I think we've always tried to be careful about that. Not because I prefer things that are protected by infl- from inflation, but just because I've said for a while, it, it there's no premium for buying things that were, you know. There was no sense um, that something that had bought meaningful assets in the past was a better business uh, to own than something that has to pay most of its um, profits out for labor and for uh, and for food costs and things like that. You just weren't seeing that, you know. So like retail and restaurants and things, we're not trading at a discount to um, something that had that had a heavy asset component that it never had to invest in again, you know. Um, so, but we just we've talked a lot about that in the past about the advantages of owning something that is a little bit more protected that way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just like, for instance, you know, I don't think ad agencies have ever, uh, ever traded at some sort of premium over restaurants just because I think that they are a better business in inflation times. They traded as if the current period of, uh, you know, really low inflation and, uh, would continue indefinitely. And I haven't seen a big shift in any of the stuff we've talked about that way. Mm-mm. Have you? No. So, I mean, so what are your thoughts and like, what would your advice be? I mean, is it, is that something that you would actually consider? I know you just said that you Buffett, whenever he did anything specifically for inflation, it didn't really work out well. But I mean, is it really just sticking to high quality businesses or would you actually be interested in buying a basket of something like Alico, MLP, Nathan's or FRP? I mean, is that something that you would actually be interested in doing? Uh, it's something that I've always 
factored in is how much they have to spend in the future instead of what they generate free cash flow. Big free cash flow generators are the kinds of things that you would want to own. Um, and also, I've always worried uh, about labor in the things that we've invested in. Um, you know, in recent years, there's never been, there's there's just are not you know stri- strikes and things like that at, at all. Um, and so people probably aren't that worried about unionization or something like that. But that's always been something that I've have been cautious of when investing in companies. Um, it is an issue. And, you know, it's an, it's an issue, um, you know, like, like village supermarket or something, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just more of a problem when you're in a business like that, uh, with the labor issues that you would have, there may be ways to offset it over time and and whatever, but you know, it's a completely unionized labor force. Um, the industry, except for certain new players in that state is completely unionized. Uh, you know, that is an issue in terms of I mean, labor is such a big component of their costs. So that is something to think about. On the other hand, you know, with inflation and stuff, um, I guess some people may like to see some, you know, revenue growth and things like that. Certainly I think supermarkets, uh, I've thought for a while supermarkets offer a kind of attractive alternative versus restaurants. And I've been wrong about that. Society's completely gone in the direction, even with the pricing differential of food at restaurants mm-hmm. and delivery and things like that, um, not driving them to buy more at supermarkets. You know, it may be in the future that there's even more of that to the benefit of supermarkets versus restaurants. I think it's easier for supermarkets to reduce the labor component for them. And I think some of them are, I've already worked on it pretty hard. Um and restaurants hadn't been before COVID working hard enough on that to compete with supermarkets. So, yeah, I, th- I mean, that's the kind of thing. If, you know, if, you, if your real wages decline, it does encourage you to go um, buy from the supermarket than to go and eat out. That's certainly true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I already thought, you know, if you look at the last few years, the price situation in supermarkets before COVID. So the last few years before COVID, it was almost on the border of deflation and stuff, which is not something they'd seen since the fifties and certainly not comparing food at a supermarket versus at restaurants. The gap was getting really big, but it was not causing a shift to supermarkets as in restaurant prices continue to go up, but prices at supermarkets continue to go down. Yeah. And I would think that, I mean, supermarkets do need different labor and stuff, but for the most part, supermarkets are in a much better position to keep their workforce. They already have, and some of them have more stable workforce than restaurants, um, than restaurants. I mean, in some cases you're comparing things like, you know, Costco and stuff, which is a very stable workforce compared to the workforce of any restaurant. Mm -hmm. So even if they pay higher wages and things like that, they are in a better position, uh, relative to restaurants. Um, you know, anything where you have the disruption of like they did closing down and then different levels and different hours and all the things that they did over time, is very disruptive to the business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but even things that are have been open throughout COVID and stuff are still having strong wage increases. I mean, uh, you know, around here, In and Out is paying at levels that to hire people is paying at levels that three, four years ago would have been the best pay that anyone in that industry was getting. You know, I think I saw some for McDonald's like twenty one bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're still having a hard time um, filling a lot of these positions. And I wonder if it's maybe the younger generation, there's been such a societal change where they don't want to work as much or they're interested in doing other things. I mean, here's something that's interesting, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like 10 years ago, if you were a reporter and you worked online, you can make a lot of, or worked not online, you worked for the company, you can make, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. They all, a lot of the reporters, sort of the trend has been, oh, I could just, you know, start a sub stack start a Twitter, produce my own content, own my own content, put out, do whatever Mm -hmm. I want and make the same amount of money, if not more over time. Yeah. And the best ones will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how much of that is transitory versus like a societal shift? And it's like, how do you gauge that? Maybe it's hard to do in the short term though. I don't think there's much of a societal, I mean, I don't pick up on much of a permanent societal shift. Uh, I think the people... I've heard a lot of people saying that there is. I mean, there was um, a lot of stimulus, a lot of credit availability. 
Um, and just the gap between, um, for a short period of time, but the gap between working and the life that that would cause, um, you to have, uh, at an entry level job and the life that you were living was not very different during COVID. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've talked about like, I visit some places that are very, very, very poor counties and stuff. Yes. In those places, there's no incentive to work because the amount that you can make at all, but the best jobs and what there's available to spend your money on mm-hmm. is not very attractive versus the level of subsistence that you would get from government support. But that's extremely rare in the United States. That's, you know, present in some very poor, very rural counties and stuff. And then I think in those places you do have, lo- you, you have permanent, a lot of people that are not going to seek full-time employment in those places. They might seek um, sort of semi-entrepreneurial things like you're talking about doing and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the advantages of a full-time job there are not very big. But it, around here or something, no, I don't think that's true. I don't see that. Um, the The advantages are very big for being employed versus not. Um, I just think that a big part of it is just the shift that we see with the disruption. You know, I compare it to like... Um, 1946 in the U.S. and stuff where you had demobilization. So you had so many people that went into the military for several years and then you had them come out and then what that did to the labor force and all that. And there were some effects from that. You saw some pretty extreme effects. So it was brief though. It was a blip. Um, You saw a lot of strikes. It might have set a record around that time in terms of strikes that you saw. And you saw momentary uh, effects on like inflation and things like that. Difference though is, you know, government policy at the time was, well, it quickly became um, not running deficits, you know, and now the policy is interesting for the years ahead, right? On an absolute basis, both monetary policy and fiscal policy are loose, but on a relative basis, in terms of sequentially, they'll be very tight, you know, the level of reduction in deficit, level of tightening. Um, in terms of uh, amount of time period in which it happens, will be extremely tight. Um, but on an absolute basis, again, like it will over the long term norm be loose. Mm-hmm. It's just that if you're expecting the last year or two to have been normal, it will be a lot different from that. the The speed of it will be extreme. Um, so we have lots of different periods, and it's hard to predict what things happen in each case because of that. Um, obviously people expect, I mean, people expect this to be more temporary mm-hmm. than it's proven to be, I guess. I don't know how it could be more temporary than it. I mean, we're not very far along. Mm-hmm. It'd be hard to be more, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it'd be hard to be more temporary, uh, than this. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, uh, I mean, people wouldn't change prices on a lot of these things we're talking about if they really thought it was going to be that short term, you know? Um, and I don't know. I wrote a thing to manage account people like at the beginning of the year or whatever, I guess was the beginning of the year or whatever it was saying that this would be the best year for used car. Yeah. Things. Mm-hmm. And it's happened like we expected, mm-hmm. but like you knew that that would happen because inventories were nothing. Mm-hmm. So in some ways I'm surprised by the reaction over this period of time. Um, because if inventory levels of things are that, uh, low then that's bound to happen in in things like that you know it's not a it's not like the stock market the stock market clears every day so you have these big moves if you have an imbalance in something like cars or homes there's a lot of momentum for a long period of time because you know it just it doesn't work the same way it takes a very long time to adjust you know seeing that in china where i saw there's predictions from people of slight growth in the price of homes in china one percent two percent three percent but there's huge volume declines and that's normally what you see with with homes is that the big volume declines happen before any price declines at all happen because the market just like seizes up, you know, which is very different from a stock market. In a stock market, when people realize that prices are going to drop, they do drop. Mm-hmm. With homes, you just say, I'm not selling my house then. Yeah. And you hold on longer. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't, you don't sell the way that you do a stock. And so I think a lot of it could also be a disconnect with us where, um, economic data like this does not move as fast as the stock market moves. You know, the stock market adjusts in a big way very quickly mm-hmm. compared to these things that have a lot of momentum built into them. And so when you get into a really tight situation with lack of inventory supply of different things, and it takes a long time. We, I mean, 
how long ago was it that we knew all these different businesses saying they were having trouble getting labor? Mm, sure. So then yeah. it's not a surprise that they have to raise the, the what they're offering to bring people in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's only how else do you incentivize them? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Because you're right. I mean, that's been yeah. A, so the, a I 2021. Mean, I mean, that's been a, a problem since what? Like the bottom of the pandemic. Really. Yeah. So I just mean it takes time for people to. It's different from the stock market. Is it's, it almost like because the data finally catches up to it? No. You know what happens is because like what I mean is the um like we see the data later and everything. But when you read these transcripts and people say these things, then you know the direction that that has to go eventually because in a stock if you're saying i really want this stock but they won't um but they won't come down to my bid right mm-hmm. well people don't just sit there for three months waiting yeah, yeah. but an employer does I feel like we do <laughs> they, they sit there for three months saying i can't get any labor and then finally they say okay i'll raise it mm-hmm. i'll put out the sign yeah raise the raise, the raise it yeah. yeah because they do wait much longer than you do in a stock market because I mean, I could just anecdotally about so many different industries, how long they said, we have no inventory, we can't get our orders filled, whatever mm-hmm. for these things. And they knew like that prices were going to go up or some people will tell you, you do hear this a lot when you talk to people who are not in like stock things and stuff, but just in business that yes, they can't get their order filled. Yes. They order twice as much and then get half of what they wanted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Everything's back order or whatever, but that doesn't mean prices will go up. Well, it does mean prices will go up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only like that is what will solve it. Otherwise, unless you have an agreement by everybody not to do that, we'll all make do with empty shelves. Um, that's exactly what causes prices to eventually go up. Like those are the things. That's why prices move. Yeah. Too up much down. money chasing too few goods. Yeah. It's, it's it. supply and demand that way. Yeah. Um, and it's just that with with stocks and and bonds and things like that, we are used to markets that the volume doesn't disappear. Um, the price moves to accommodate the volume, um, you know, and, and so the price moves, we're used to very big price moves, right? But that is not what happens in these sorts of markets. So in, a, you know, like in a labor market or something, you have a change in quantity um, because you didn't move the price because people just are not going to say, okay, 10% across the board price increase and that will get us all the labor that we need or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But in stocks, that's what they'll, it'll move immediately to make mm-hmm. sure that that happens. You know, the market keeps moving that way. So I just think it's a big difference between them that, you know, we have to deal with that. You're like getting these constant flow of things and people talking about it as if it's been a really long time. It really hasn't been that long. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read about these things in like, like I was saying with 1946 and stuff, you read about these things there when they mention two years of something it seems like oh so that was a short period of time yeah mm-hmm. but here talking about when you're living month. in real life yeah uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah we always talk about that i feel like with investing yeah. how it's just like we look at it through a different lens because we're looking at the past and the present and you know two years seems like two seconds but that's not the case in real life kind of going forward basis. yeah and and there's also even people looking forward so they kind of get the market almost gets over things that are even happening right now like you know with the movie theater things yeah um, i was looking at that recently yeah so so movie theaters um they're basically for the last quarter if you adjust for all the things they adjust for for their ebitda and whatever maybe they're at about zero yeah you know they didn't mm-hmm. actually generate cash and box office hasn't been really improving no so so box office now but now box office is going to we'll make a prediction here so okay so you're here to make this prediction. Right, so box make office compared to this past quarter we just had and and earlier in this year is going to be really strong in the next quarter okay what leads and i'm predicting that? that no the only the prediction is is supply yeah yeah mm-hmm. is that that that's what determines it now um if we look yeah you got box office mojo or like i said the numbers um uh yeah, the numbers is probably more uh, better now for it than uh, box office mojo. But well, I predicted James Bond, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. I was not correct on that. I said it would do 150 million uh, U.S. and 500 million in the rest of the world, and it did significantly more in the rest of the world than I thought it would. But it probably ended up at 750 million or something, pretty close in the U.S. Um, I just think the lineup. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, it doesn't tell me, but James Bond's No Time to Die thing there. So um, I think the lineup is strong for the movies. The problem that you've had with movies is very, very weak um, lineup. Like, for instance, the James Bond movie. Yeah. Honestly, it did about 
that's about what a nor- normal Daniel Craig James Bond movie does worldwide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about that's about consistent with it. Skyfall did maybe twice that or something in the U.S. Uh, and and a bit bigger in the rest of the world. But an average James Bond movie did about that, and that's normal for that. Uh, I think The Eternals basically did what it would do outside of COVID. Not that it was really strong numbers for a Marvel movie, but I didn't think it was ever going to do really strong numbers. So the like really big ones, yeah that have been released haven't been that far off. But uh, um, you're right that if you look at box office versus uh, restaurants, for instance, if we look at like on a nominal basis, uh, restaurants in in some cases are like 90%, you know, depending on how short a window you make it of this month versus year, you know, versus before COVID month uh, are like 90% or something of what they were at. Uh, whereas box office, we're talking about down over a third or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, still. If you try to compare apples to apples, I'd say you're at, you know, in a sense, box office is at maybe 60% of capacity. Restaurants are at 90%. Now, both those are, restaurants more so, are affected by the inflation thing. Like on a real basis, I don't think restaurants are really that close to being back. Yeah, I was looking at Cinemark recently. Yeah. Just looking at the price and everything. Marcus, everything. Yeah, so, so I had said before with Cinemark that I was kind of surprised by the, um, the strength of the, the those stocks actually during the like summer period mm-hmm. where I didn't think that the box office results were that strong. Um, now I think that the issue is like what we talked about before, where I'm more worried about like changes in the way that these movies are distributed and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah, I do think that basically you're almost seeing the big movies do about the same as they would have done outside of covid you know but that also can be less competition that they're not facing as much competition um but like even things like uh um they, they've some of these things have probably been cannibalized a bit by video you know going on to streaming, streaming and stuff yep. like that mm-hmm. faster um although the companies make plenty of money off of that the the distributors and stuff you know um because they do a premium like you know disney and stuff doesn't uh, warner bros is the only one really there have been others actually like um uh, technically peacock but it's not a big streaming service um release things right away on that i i uh, am a subscriber to peacock do they have the office only for the office that's it that's yeah. literally i didn't watch the office for months because they took it off netflix and then finally i was like i'm gonna pay 10 bucks or whatever <laughs> it is to watch my favorite show it is interesting. So like a year or so, they can collect more money from you than it would be to buy the whole thing physically. Uh, yeah, I know. It's like, why don't I just buy it physically? But then, <laughs> but no, have to, but but then you have, it, have yeah. to have it physically, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't have a CD player or DVD player. But right. You're, to your point, though, if you factor in how, I mean, I'll probably watch The Office forever. Yeah, versus no. actually it, owning it, it myself. Is a, it's a convenience thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that for some audience, like as for instance, I do, th- the big, the, their movies I think will be very affected and we've seen evidence of it. Um, any movie that was targeted at um, older audiences, by which I mean that they don't have a significant like 13 to 30 um, audience thing. So like uh, House of Gucci, right? That I think will probably not do as well as it could have right um just because you'll have more people who would watch that who who say i can watch that when it comes out uh, because they know it's not that long before i'm able to see it in some streaming mm-hmm. platform if they want to see it so definitely older audiences that way which has already been a harder thing for movies to reach anyway um but i mean among younger audiences for the things that like um you know, even James Bond. James Bond skews pretty old um, for a, I mean, pretty old for an action uh, franchise type thing, you know. Um, and it did fine, you know. So I think the those big movies will do fine that way. But some of the ones, some of the just like straight dramas and stuff, I think have a really hard time. It's almost more like the way it happened with plays on Broadway where we're just, you know, like musicals and stuff over just became the market taking Mm -hmm. out all sorts of different plays that 50 years ago would have done some money now i think the same sort of thing if it's not a if it's not a cgi event um type movie that's going to bring in younger audiences and stuff i i don't know that it'll do as well now and i don't know that it'll get as big a window it's interesting how the shift um between like movies versus tv i feel like 20 years ago if you were an actor and you were doing tv you Mm -hmm. were like 
dead on arrival, right? It was right. always you had to do movies. But nowadays, it's the TV shows. If you get a hit, it's like a huge big deal. Yeah, and um, and then the, it, there's even a thing of like uh, where the line is on those things of what's a movie, what's uh, what what we really think of as a movie and versus TV. When you have something go on a streaming platform and have six episodes of something that's in many ways similar in production to a to doing a movie because i've seen some shows before i'm like that would have been a good movie and i just spent 10 weeks watching well it's a big thing for disney because disney has to decide what and they may decide wrong should the eternals have been a movie or and should uh you know should hawkeye have been a movie should the eternals have been a tv show should you know um things like that they have to make those decisions and uh They'll do fine that way, but I think for the the gap has closed. I think you know that's what I was talking about. The the there was a certain prestige element to ha- seeing for something coming out in theaters versus DVD only, mm-hmm. a TV show, whatever. It, it had an event element to it that mm-hmm. helped you out, and I think that is a problem. Now the movies that I just said that like kind of I think did okay are James Bond and Marvel things, which are still considered events, you know, um, for the people who they're the audience for them, you know, that's built in. It only comes out every so often, you know, um, even a Spider-Man thing, you know, it is a couple years between an actual Spider-Man movie. So it will be an event for people who are fans of that. Um, you know, whereas like just a typical, it's a Mark Wahlberg movie. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that would be hurt more if it's not a part of a franchise, you know, if it's not Transformers or something like that, then I think that it will not do the same in post-COVID times. Does Transformers still make movies? Uh, they did. They attempted a like spinoff at a lower pr- uh, production cost and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, yeah, eventually I'm sure they'll do things again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bring a new generation of eyes. Yeah. So I I think that's one of the changes um, that's happened with COVID. But I mean, the big one for those is the debt. I've looked at them. I mean, I haven't looked at AMC. I mean, I've looked at AMC, but not as a stock. I yeah, just took all what the you, business. Uh, what about, what do you think about the, the streaming window and how that affects AMC? Uh, that's a joke. Um, but I have looked at Cinemark, Marcus, things like that. Mm-hmm. Reading is another company. We too. did a lot of work on Marcus in 2020, I would say. Mm-hmm. Visiting different places and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, you know, they're not super cheap. Uh, when you factor in the debt and stuff like that, they, they, I've said before, I think they're kind of, I mean, they're, they're down, um, some of them from where they were, but when you factor in on an enterprise value basis, I do feel like you're basically pricing it that it's back to where it was. Mm-hmm. Marcus of course has a problem that they have hotels that are very driven by business travel. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I do wonder about. I'm not sure that business travel and business and events, in general. Yeah. yeah. We've talked a little bit about that. I, I you know, I'm not sure about commercial s- uh, office space uh, will be exactly the same that it was before. I'm not sure that hotels that cater to events and conventions and things like that will be quite the same. Even if I think that, you know, um, in the long, and I think I said that with booking when we talked about booking, I don't feel that in the long run, this is really a permanent difference in terms of people's um, uh, personal travel, leisure travel. I do think that will basically be on the same trend that it would have been with or without COVID in the long run. It'll take a little while to get back there. But I do think you were talking about like things that actually change, like whether people's appetite for work change, I don't know, but their appetite for working in an office has changed. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah certainly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe that affects things. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe that affects, does make it harder on service things that we're talking about um, that are like, whether it's working in an Amazon warehouse or working in a restaurant setting or something like that. Maybe it is particularly hard on those labor things because that kind of job, uh, people may not assume that that's, that all jobs are like that, right? That job is not very flexible, those jobs. Mm. You know, they're very not flexible versus an office job. Office jobs have gotten even more flexible now. So maybe it is a little bit tougher, I guess. Um, because it's, it's interesting if you look, like some of those, people may not realize it, but like some of the things we're talking about with restaurants and what they're hiring at and stuff, fast food things, is actually pretty much in line with some entry-level things for office stuff. You know, they're, they're going to be at about the same. And so mm-hmm. maybe people feel like, well, the office thing's a lot more flexible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like you've seen that even with the education system. You could go to college and then become a teacher, 
like a mm -hmm. you know elementary middle or high school teacher not private public right or you could go work in a amazon warehouse and make probably about the same amount of money right the difficulty i think for that kind of thing for amazon and stuff is the what you were saying about like have if things have changed maybe some things have changed in attitude about certain kinds of work that's more common in industrial manufacturing mm -hmm. and things sort of and um uh food service stuff like i was saying with a supermarket and stuff that kind of job may be less attractive to people than a job that is a, a white collar um uh, office type job if it's so much more flexible yeah because not that long ago many entry-level office jobs were not very flexible weren't actually not all that flexible compared to the kinds of jobs we're talking about mm -hmm. you know they both involved punching a clock in pretty much the same way yeah but that has certainly changed a lot where plenty of people will spend at least part of their time not working in an office and maybe that's attractive to them you know got it cool how long has this podcast been let's see is this a record hour eight minutes <laughs> well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the focus compounding podcast i love doing these news episodes where it's just more timely more not news but just more timely stuff and how we're thinking mm -hmm. about it as opposed to timeless mm -hmm. content uh so we'll definitely do more of these in the future people so actually listen to this in a few years yeah it's right. not worth anything yeah well that's true but uh this is the best for views best for clicks that's, what, best everyone, for clicks. that's yeah. what everyone's thinking about but i do think people enjoy listening so it's to timely framing content. it i suppose it's evergreen content yes this timely deciduous content yes yeah timely so i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us uh be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to us um uh, go to quickfs.net and sign up there and tell them that you came from Focused Compounding. And of course, follow me on Twitter. That's the best place to get everything that I put out there on the internet, Focused Compounding related. We're about to do a Q&A right now. And if you want to uh, be on the lookout for that in the future, easiest way to do that is to follow me on Twitter. Thank you so much for everybody for all the support. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.